Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. My guest this week, John Hope Bryant, brings passion, dedication, and pure enthusiasm to everything he does. Born and raised in Los Angeles, the 1992 Rodney King riots profoundly impacted John and led to the founding of his organization, Operation Hope. For the last 30 years now, John has used the organization and his platform to address economic inequality, social injustice, and systemic financial barriers born out of the history of racism in the United States. John Hope Bryant, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Honored to be here. Honored to be with you. Thanks for all you do. And to you. Um, You know, we have both been at the work of financial inclusion for a long time, but you've got a good eight years on me. Mm -hmm. You started Operation Hope in 1992, and it's been really inspiring to watch your vision and your work grow and evolve over these last 30 years. Um, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about your flagship organization, Operation Hope, and the key learnings and pivot points on the journey. I think you're such a well-known figure and everyone knows Operation Hope, but I don't think they really know just how much your organization is doing every day. Operation Hope was founded after the Rodney King riots in 1992 as America's first nonprofit social investment banking organization. And I was laughed at then by that and a few other things, financial literacy, ha, 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 capitalism and free enterprise in the hood, ha, 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 ha. We have um, 4 million clients. We have $4 billion in capital that our partners through Operation Hope has invested uh, for home ownership, small business ownership, consumer credit, et cetera, down payment assistance, uh, um, disaster recovery. We're about to go into Florida right now. God Mm -hmm. bless those who are affected there. Um, We created financial literacy policy, uh, at least at the executive level, with it uh, through George H.W. Bush and then Obama followed suit. Uh, We created emergency financial disaster preparedness response recovery policy under Secretary Tom Ridge, first secretary of DHS, um, Hope Department of Homeland Security, and are the national partner with FEMA and Homeland Security. And FEMA, FEMA and Homeland Security on uh, basically the economic risk cross is our model. After you have a physical and emotional disaster, you have a financial one. We um, are in 46 states, uh, 200 uh, locations full time. Budget last year doubled from our projections. Um, and that's the and the work also doubled. Uh, we surged again during the pandemic. Uh, we surged, unfortunately, during every crisis. And whether it's good news or bad news, there's a role for Operation Hope. Our mission is to become America's financial coach. As you know, my mission's a little bit more than that. But <laughs> for, so that people can understand it, it's the private banker to the working class. Mm-hmm. Folks with too much month at the end of their money. Uh, we're raising credit scores, 54 points in six months, 120 points in 24 months. Nothing changed your life more than God or love, the moving your credit score 120 points. Um, mm-hmm. we, uh, we're reducing debt by $2,600 for somebody making 50 grand a year. That's transformational. We're increasing savings about $300 for that same individual. Doesn't sound like a lot, but the average American, as you know, doesn't have uh, $400 for an unplanned exactly. thing. So, yeah, there's much more to it, but that's the bones of the organization. 
uh, founded. This is our 30th year, and we've only just begun. You know, you mentioned the history of Operation Hope really being rooted in the L.A. riots, and people still talk about that first bus tour, John, that you led, where you brought largely white male corporate execs to South Central L.A. to hope to help open their eyes to the disinvestment. And now here we are 30 years later. Um, I'm glad for that too, by the way. <laughs> I, I know, I know. But I, my question is, have things improved in the way that your 20-something-year-old self had hoped they would? Better and worse. Say more. Um, it's really funny. Uh, uh, talking about generational situation, uh, uh, T.I., the entertainer T.I., he's a friend of mine, and, and mm. he calls me a mentor. And he, we were talking one day, and I said something. He said, say less. I said, excuse me? <laughs> you said, say more. I, I said, man, what are you, you trying to offend me? You mean say less. I got a lot to say. He's like, no, no, say less, meaning I understand what you meant. Right. Well, so, I mean, listen, it is bold of me as a podcast host to be telling John Hope Bryant to say more because we all know you got a lot to say. Uh, talking to me is like getting a glass of water out of a fire hydrant. <laughs> um, but you never want to be the old guy in the club. Yeah. So before you kick me out of this this deal, I'm gonna leave. No, look, passion's not my problem. Um, um, look, um, I think that you know, if you'd asked me, would I have would I be national with 200 locations uh, with a with a I think a logical vision to get to a thousand? No, I wouldn't have said that. If you had asked me, uh, would would I would would I think that corporate major corporations would just sort of hand me their brand and uh, you know large chunks of capital and trust me with it, I'd say no. If you ask me if this would become a mainstream issue in this country back then, based on where I came from, yeah, uh, I would say no. So those are some positive things. And I can see scale around, coming around the corner. The negatives are the problem is outrun the moment. Yeah. Um, I think we're in a moment. I think that uh, we're sitting in a moment in history right now. I don't think history feels historic when you're sitting in it. It just feels like another day. But that doesn't mean it's not historic. And you sort of feel like no matter how many speeches I give, no matter how many great podcasts like yours I do, no matter how many meetings I have, no matter how much I travel, somehow the problem and the issue of struggling people is outrunning my capacity in real time to solve it or address it. I think that the political environment has surprised me. In what way? I never thought that um, this country would uh, manipulate facts. Um, I never thought that we would be dumb on purpose. Um, I mean, to be stupid it is a lot of work because we're we're we live in a smart economy. You can, you can search anything you want on your smartphone. Uh, the internet is available to everybody. Knowledge is accessible. Common sense. You feel it in your gut. Women have women have an intuition. Um, I'm not a woman, but I, I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. There's a woman's intuition. And I think that's God speaking to you and through you. I think people know in their bones what the truth looks like. And now I sort of realize that that democracy is a very delicate thing. And you've got to protect it and earn it back every day. Mm-hmm. And um, we are in a very dangerous moment. We're in a cultural civil war because we never healed. We never said, Confederates, you lost. (laughs) That was a sin. That was wrong. 
We're Americans. Now we're all on this team. Now, by the way, publicly acknowledge that. Okay, tear up that flag and yep. you know, let's be let's be done with it. Now we're all Americans. Never did it. And that's where we 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 are. Uh, we we just have a lot of unfinished business. And I never thought that it would bubble up to be mainstream. I knew there'd be fringe this and fringe that, but to have fringe in the main and to have people lying with a straight face is I mean, good thing my middle name is Hope. So, so I guess yeah, so. Yeah. Those are the two god dichotomies. We we have the infrastructure I never thought I'd have, the momentum I never thought I'd have, but now I'm trying to catch up to yeah. a range of problems. Right. Well, and I think that begs the question: How do we, as a nation, simultaneously do that healing that you talk about and make progress on empowerment and ownership? For Black Americans and people of color, how do you do those things at the same time? Because there's equal pressure, frankly, on both right now. So coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. <laughs> um, if it wasn't for the global pandemic, the worst in 125 years, we wouldn't have gotten rid of a certain individual who would have been reelected as president by an overwhelming margin. Luckily, he mismanaged it. Um, because if he was had a second term, we'd be we'd be a banana republic, in my opinion. Uh, if it wasn't for the pandemic and then the social and then the George Floyd incident that followed that, and us and because of the pandemic, everybody's watching the news. If it wasn't for the pandemic, <laughs> a large swath of us would have been like, well, what was that thing? George, who? Somebody Floyd? Okay, what time is dinner? But because of the pandemic, we're all watching the news. All of us, the, you know, children, college students, mm-hmm. hippies, everybody, right? And uh, and we saw a public lynching. Well, that that triggered the 400 year old social justice reckoning of Black America. Then you had I'm 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 paraphrasing here. Then you had sure. January sixth, which is the first time that's happened since the 1800s. And that was the British attacking us. <laughs> These are Americans attacking us. And then you had this year Roe versus Wade. I'm at a um, dinner uh, in and very like you like you. I go to these dinners. People expect us to talk. So I went to dinner in Sun Valley and I. And they set me in the head of the table. So, okay, here we go again. And I didn't have to say a word for 45 minutes because the wealthy white women at the table were cursing. They're like, this is some BS, right? And they're talking about Roe versus Wade. And they were upset. And I, after 45 minutes, I turned to them and I said, well, congratulations. You now know what it feels like to be black mm. <laughs> um, when you don't have a voice and no one's mm. listening to you and paying attention. And somebody tells you what to do with your body and your life and doesn't care what you think about it. And so now that you're outraged about this, what are you going to do about it? So now you have outrage about the environment. You have outrage. I mean, what happened in Florida would have been much less intense if we didn't have global warming, yeah, warming yeah. of the seas, and because hurricanes feed on warm weather, uh, warm water, et cetera. Uh, with, you know, you you have the women's rights issue. You have the environmental issue. You have this economic issue that's affecting everybody, by the way, not just black people. You have, you have uh, the global pandemic. Uh, you had the... Uh, the, this political, deep, you know, unraveling. If you're a Republican, you're wondering what the heck happened right. <laughs> to, your, to your party. I mean, it, so everybody's got something to be pissed off about. That's a that to me, that's a reason for hope because if it's just black people upset or just Latinos or just poor people, you're doomed. So there's two reasons why I'm, I'm actually hopeful. Rainbows only follow storms. You cannot have a rainbow without a storm first. Number one, everybody's got a knot on their head. <laughs> everybody's frustrated about something mm-hmm. and nothing gets solved unless you're frustrated. If you were happy, you move on with your life. 
Uh, number two, demographics are destiny. I love math, Melody Hobson quote, because it doesn't have an opinion. <laughs> and the math for the first time in history is that people of color uh, and women together are going to become the demographic majority. Now, that's not some that's not some sort of wide-eyed liberal statement. It has nothing to do with any of that. Blacks won because we're all in this thing together. That the economy lost $16 trillion, according to the Citigroup report, uh, enduring the pandemic because of racism against Blacks alone in the last 20 years alone. That every major company that is successful financially is is embraced diversity and inclusion. And companies that have been that have hit a a, a hard nose and and thumbed out is because they actually have embraced has rejected um, progressive thought. Uh, the, the largest economies in the U.S. The largest economy in the U.S. Well, first of all, the, the U.S. is the largest economy in the world, the most diverse place in the world. The two largest economies are the most diverse states. The only city in the South that embraces all people is the most economically prosperous, where I'm at, Atlanta, the moral capital of America. You can go on and on and on. How diversity is a business case, not a moral case. Mm -hmm. That's what gives me hope, is that the math now is on the side of justice. And by the way, we've been here before. I know you have a question coming up, so I won't upend it, because you mentioned we want to talk about the role of the private sector. But we're going there next. So go ahead. I mean, I essentially, while all these friction points and challenges have been going on, right, there's been increasing pressure on the private sector to step up. I think there's a lot of statements being made and a lot of commitments being made. And I'm curious to know what you think about those, whether you feel like it's legit, it's real. Is it window dressing? Do you think and do you think it's lasting? It's the same answer I gave you about um, Operation Hope and what when I look back. It's the same answer, but just different. $62 billion, $62 billion, $62 billion <laughs> that was committed by corporations for social justice after George Floyd uh, in 20, between 20, uh, well, by 2021, right. end of year. That's, that's a big number by anybody's uh, measurement. Now, um, is some of that number fluff? Yes, it is, because some of that by banks would have been done anyway. Is mortgages and so on and so forth. They're already on a trend line to do some of that stuff. It's their job, by the way, under the Community Reinvestment Act to do it. But I don't mind them getting credit for doing that. Uh, maybe it holds them accountable. But even if half of $62 billion is malarkey, I'll take it. It's still the largest commitment to social justice and economic uplift of those who are the underserved in the history of any modern economy. Do you think the commitments are... Um, off the side of the desk, philanthropic, et cetera? Or do you think you're seeing change in the actual business and business cases in the boardrooms? That's the question. I think that you're saying, you're, you're saying this is business. Let me answer your question directly. This is business. This is, I'm no longer talking to the, I, I've talked to everybody, CRA manager, right. vice president of public affairs and coming up, you know, in my career. Mm -hmm. I'm The speed dial I've got now are CEOs. CEOs, billionaires, um, you know, the, the folks who lead the companies want to know what the heck are you thinking, John? What are we doing? How are we doing it? This comes up to my desk now. This hits my desk. Um, uh, I'm dealing with the vice chairman, the chairman, the CEO, the, the shareholders, and they see their brand equity wrapped up in these issues and they see their customers and their employees wrapped up uh, in these issues. So this used to be a foundation issue or a public affairs issue, right. or PR issue or Community, you know, nothing wrong with that stuff, by the way. But now this is a squarely a, 
a business issue. They just don't know what to do. That's all. They know they right, want right. to do something. They don't know what to do. So a large part of this 62 billion, which I think is well-meaning, it's just that the corporate suite does not know how to get down to the public street. That's part of my job, part of your job, part of other folks' job is to be the translator and the transmitter uh, to help folks who want to do good to do good so they can go from PhD to PhD. Uh, uh, let me give you a place of hope. We've been here before. The South, where I'm at now, the, the, the Southern states, uh, we're not integrated by the mayors and the governors and elected officials. In fact, those elected officials were standing oftentimes in the doors of progress and saying, over my dead body, mm. will you enter this room? Playing on the fears of politics of that moment. It was the private sector, Jennifer, the private sector that stood up and said, knock it off. <laughs> uh, the, the color of my currency is green. <laughs> right. And the black folks got green just like the white folks got green. And uh, y'all picketing in my neighborhoods, in my city where the majority of the customers are black, is causing me to go broke. So the JCPenney and Woolworth and uh, the, the corner uh, soda shop and the bus company, which back then was privately held, took down the whites only signs first. And that was my mentor, Ambassador Andrew Young, who negotiated those deals behind closed doors. Dr. King would shut down the economy. And a few weeks later, Andrew Young would go put on a business suit behind closed doors and cut a deal to take down the whites only signs. Now, uh, they would then, the leaders in that town, Jennifer, would go to the politicians and say, okay, now we've knocked it off. Now it's time for you to knock it off. And by the way, you're not compelled. We're financing your campaign. And that's what changed the South. It was the private sector that opened it up. That's why I have hope. One of the many reasons I have hope today, I think that racism is economically stupid. Uh, I actually think whenever you turn on the greed button on the saving the environment, the environment will be saved. I don't mean that like as bluntly and as it's as it as that sounded, but I mean that when you if you stop saying do good and say to the Se yeah, self, listen, self interest self interest is very effective lever. I mean, look, think about think about solar highways all around the world. Uh, we got concrete highways, the concrete asphalt, which mm -hmm. is raised in all kind of heat levels. It, it, this was created in the 1940s, 1950s. It was a Huge boom for jobs, for contracting, for it went on for 20 years. Imagine if you flipped that switch worldwide uh, around turning that into solar highways, plugged into solar homes, plugged into, and then those who have places that are hot, which tend to be poor, by the way, could sell that excess energy to places yep. that are cold. Okay, now you created a whole nother industry and set of businesses. I mean, this is we're getting off topic, sort of, but I'm, I'm just saying, it, in some ways, we've been looking for love in all the wrong places, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So uh, I love the way that you are a student of history and that you um, help connect points in history because history just repeats itself over and over again. But despite your embrace of the private sector and mine, um, I think we both would agree that government does play a vital role. Oh, um, absolutely. And so the question is, particularly as it relates to racial equity, reducing the racial wealth gap, 
promoting uh, uh, black wealth. What should the government be doing? What is one of there are many things the government is trying to do. What's the most important thing it can be doing? The groundwater effects. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, when when I was coming up, folks did not take me seriously, and they literally, literally rolled their eyes. <laughs> well, you were young back then, and back then, you know, young people didn't get anything done, and you know, we're like unfortunately Gen Xers, right? Everyone counted us out. Um, uh, well, now yeah. today, young people do everything. Well, yeah. Well, you cannot have a movement with actually without young people, and I right. and, and because young people are idealistic and they want to change the world and. You know, Dr. King was young and Gandhi, I mean, uh, yeah. all these folks that, you know, had started when they were young. Mandela started with all these. And, and I was young, started Operation Hope. I just, yeah. thank God people dismissed me. They take me seriously. They were stood in my way. By the time you, you, you look up, um, I've got momentum. You remember people, I'd walk into a room, you were there in the room. People would, and I'm not talking about 20, 30 years ago. I'm talking about a decade. People were still rolling their eyes. Okay, here mm. comes John, Brian, whatever it is they had in their, in their mind. All my point is that, I just was in a. I just saw something different than everybody else saw, mm-hmm. and was and and I was willing to take the road less traveled and pursue it. My point here is that I wasn't taken seriously initially, and now I'm almost taken too seriously, uh, <laughs> because now people are asking me, "What well, is he?" Not asking me, as is he going to run for office? Is if I help him, is is he going to be uh, trying to unseat me or whatever? The again, fear and yeah. stupidity. If I was going to run for office, I would have done it by now. I really do believe in what it is I'm doing and believe that this could be a transformational, historic force for good. I think this is what Dr. King would be doing if he was alive today. And one thing sets up another. So Dr. King didn't run for office, as an example. Dr. King set up an environment for office holders to do the right thing. He cre- Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize and went to see Johnson. Johnson didn't want to see him because he was afraid Dr. King was going to ask him for something. So they tried to come up with all kinds of excuses. Finally had to see him. They saw him in the residence that night, meaning no TV cameras. I'm sorry, Dr. King, I can't do another civil rights civil rights bill. I'm just doing this very quickly so we can move on to something else. I'm sorry, Dr. King, we can't do another civil rights bill. And uh, Dr. King said, why? He said, well, you think I've got more power as president than I really have. I'm sorry. So they they left, and, and Dr. King was smiling at Andrew Young. And, and Andrew Young said, why are you smiling? We got our head handed to us. He said, with Andy, doc, the, the president said that he thinks that we think that he's got more power than he really has. Well, Andy, this would give the president some more power. And and Andrew Young turned to Dr. King and said, I've never heard a more arrogant thing from a Morehouse man than that. <laughs> uh, and uh, but they went to but the, the, within two months, you had the Pettus Bridge incident. Yeah. Again, we don't have time for unpack the whole story, but that was also an accident of history. Dr. King was supposed to be there on another Sunday. Um, so he was there that Sunday, but he's got a schedule mixed up. He didn't show up. They never would have attacked folks on the Pettus Bridge if Dr. King was there. The attack happened. That created an environment where Johnson created another civil rights bill. We end up having four. So there are groundwater effects in our system that I can't I can't do anything about. Uh, somebody needs to uh, at the policy level. But what I can do is tee up the results, tee up the moment, tee, create the positive friction that will allow leaders to pass financial literacy for all uh, in K through college and fund it to pass to to pass legislation that gives a tax credit for internships at scale, apprenticeships at scale. Uh, to to so we are the I think the instigator. At the time we're recording this, I suspect that tomorrow you will be in Washington at the Friedman Bank event. 
um, which uh, Treasury yep. has now turned into an annual event, um, really focused on economic inclusion. And when I think about the role of government and I think about the Freedmen's Bank, in fact, you kind of inspired me. This goes back to the idea of truth and reconciliation yeah. and the need for healing. Yeah. When I think about the history, the, the Freedman Bank story and the fact that the government ultimately let it fail, mm. didn't come in and backstop it. And the hundreds of thousands of people who lost everything, mm. you know, the the tragedy of managing to scrape together a little something yeah. after being set free only to have it, um, you know, lost forever. But we have those records. We know exactly who is owed and how much, and we could make a very easy calculation about that, what that is worth in today's dollars. Yeah. So when I think about what the government could be doing, I think about a sort of a mini Freedmen's Bank reparations. Mm. It's not it's it's not the kind of capital R reparations that a lot of people talk about. It's mm. more like what you see colleges and universities doing when they think about, oh, we own slaves and Let's calculate the benefit that we owe those people. I, I'm curious, what do you think about that? Um, and and what other ways can the government really make good uh, on what happened in over history with the Freedmen's Bank? First of all, I want to say that what you just said is brilliant. And, uh, and as much as I think and do and whatever, people say I'm an innovative thinker, I had never thought of what you just said. And um, and the first my first reaction was, I was going to tell you, I thought you were wrong, but actually, I think you're right. Um, the reason I was going to say that I thought you were wrong is if you were going to say then thus this the, the, this thus reparations for all uh, reparations for all would literally bankrupt uh, the large economy on the planet because you the slaves were worth those enslaved were worth twice as much what railroads were worth in the 1840s. Yeah, um, it, it, and we literally built this country for free. Uh, the country was two third has been two thirds enslaved, one third free. People don't realize that, and uh, everybody was involved with it: banks, insurance companies, universities. It's touched every part of mm -hmm. society, um, uh, writ large, and uh, it is incalculable from a from an economic uh, the largest reverse transfer of wealth in uh, certainly American history, maybe world history, uh, because of how big the U.S. economy is is and has been slavery. So it is a wrong you cannot fiscally make right. But this thing about, about Freedmen's Banks, that's very doable and it's very logical because the own, the best records in the world for formerly enslaved are, people don't know, Freedmen's Banks records. Yeah. Because if you were a Union soldier and you died in the line of duty, line of duty the government had to know who, where to send you send your assets. And so they went three deep on uh, knowing, uh, documenting your family structure because of slavery, there aren't those natural records uh, to find. I, my great grandfather was, my grandfather was a slave. Sorry, my great grandmother was a slave. Mm. I can't get beyond my great grandmother's records. I can't get beyond my great grandfather's records because they were they were owned by somebody, mm -hmm. like a pair of shoes, right? So this idea you have is brilliant and. Uh, there were 71,000, I think, depositors. They were Union soldiers, primarily. And uh, they were being preyed upon in local camps by the check cashers of that day. And the bank was created to domicile their savings and, quote, teach them about the language of money, financial literacy, circa 
1865. What people don't know, Jennifer, is that two months before the Freedmen's Bank was Field Action 15, which allocated 40 acres per Union soldier uh, in a pilot program. And then the mule came the month after. They worked mm. that land really hard. They said, my God, they're so industrious. Give them a mule. People don't know that's the story of 40 acres and a mule. The bank came 30, 30 days later uh, to <laughs> finance the land and mm. domicile the savings, giving them the sort of the Jewish economic infrastructure experience of land, tools, machinery, economics, money, right, for those who are oppressed. And then Lincoln was killed the next month when he promised blacks the right to vote. And Booth said that'll be the last speech you ever give. Uh, and so you wonder today why blacks, Latinos, sorry, blacks, Native American Indians uh, and uh, poor whites are left out of the economic system. I mean, African-American blacks, not African blacks, Caribbean yep. blacks. It's because they were never given the memo. The financial, the, how the system works, how does economics mm-hmm. work? They were denied the basic infrastructure and systems of to, how to succeed in a capitalist society. Poor whites shows you it's not just racial. It's just worse if you're black. Native American Indians and African-Americans. Uh, and I, I love just, again, breaking this down into facts and details, getting it out of the gener- generic so you can understand it. So the Freedmen's Bank idea you have of reparations with small r is a brilliant idea. And I think it would show that we believe in right in this country. Uh, Let's work on that together, you and me. Oh, be be honored to. I think that would be fun. Um, All right. One last question I have for you. We could talk all day, but, you know, you you are always clear about whose shoulders you stand on. Yeah. And you talk about that a lot. By the Um, way, by the way, some people resent even that I renamed the Freedmen's Bank. That's a whole nother. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, just, you know, so, you know, is, yeah. Here's a quote for your listeners. This is what Andrew Young mastered, Dr. King. Talk without being offensive. Listen without being defensive. And always leave even your adversary with their dignity. Because if you don't, they'll spend the rest of their life trying to make you miserable. It becomes personal. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage people to who are listening to this to learn to step over mess and not in it. Mm. Win the battle, not the war. Don't rearrange the deck tears in the Titanic in your life. Just let it go and keep it moving. Let the work be your legacy. So this is another example of how you are constantly inspiring other leaders. And what I want to know is, who inspires you? I, I know there are many people from the past who inspire you every day. I'm curious, in present day, who inspires you? Well, you know, Andrew Young's still here. He's 90. True. He's around the corner. So... I call him my hero. I, I'll talk to him today. I, he answers the phone. Hey, my hero. I, I, I love the dude. I mean, walking history. Um, Bishop T.D. Jakes, dear friend of mine, and he, he is who he who he is who we know him to be uh, privately as publicly. Uh, Doug McMillan, CEO of Walmart. Mm. Uh, that dude is real. When I when I mean, he's my co-chair of financial literacy for all. He he texts he emails and texts me directly. There's no. He doesn't push it off somebody. The, the, we don't have time for this, but the story I can tell you about it, the boldness with which he moved quickly, uh, and he did it himself so that his staff couldn't stop him, <laughs> was inspiring. Uh, CEO of Delta Airlines, Ed Bastion. Mm-hmm. Um, CEO of PayPal, Dan Schulman. Um, uh, CEO of Nike, John Donahoe. Uh, luckily, I can go down this list forever. I mean, Max... Off the top of my head, Max Max uh, Maxwell Myers, the producer of the arguably the most powerful business show in the world, Squawk Box, who doesn't have me on as a black guest, 
just a guest and he puts me up with whomever and and you know and it's my job to be the last man standing on the issue of the day not the black issue of the day just the issue of the day and that and by doing that you prove that that the it's not a black guest it's just a guest mm-hmm. who happens to be black there are a lot of these he, bill rogers of truest um yeah charlie sharp is a new friend of my guy i really admire at uh, wells fargo who's fighting a good fight and doing the right thing brian jordan at uh, first horizon bank and you know women and men uh oprah winfrey and others who have quietly done the right thing consistently yeah yeah john thank you for joining me on emerge everywhere Mine be with you and keep changing the world everywhere. <laughs> Excellent. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.